Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and from PRX, this is Israel Story. Israel Story is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Today, fashionably a few days late, we're joining the omnipresent V-Day Love Fest with an episode called Love Revisited. Yeah, yeah, we know. You're probably sick of roses and cheesy Hallmark cards, but stick with us. You won't want to miss out on this one, no matter how love-saturated you are. The stories on today's episode are all part of our live show, Israel in Love. We're actually in the midst of our East Coast tour as we're recording this episode. So, in case you couldn't make our shows in New York and Miami, today on Israel's story, we have the stories of three couples looking back at their love affairs, from three very different vantage points. Of all the love tales we'll hear today, Tzvi and Regina Steinitz's has been going on the longest. In fact, it's been going on since the very birth of the State of Israel. Dana Harman, my wonderful sister, brings us Act One, Like a Stone. Their first kiss was memorable, but not at all in the way first kisses usually are. So one day, I lost my, how you say it? Inhibitions. In control. And I went to him and gave him a kiss here. I think it was very sudden and very surprising that we came so close to each other. And suddenly he fell down on the floor. Zvi fainted. Yeah, he was so excited. And I was, I looked and I was afraid what happened and helped him to come up from the floor. Uh, He will tell you. I never had a close relation to a girl. Look, I was nearly 18, but I have lost my best years in the camps and in the ghetto. Svi and Regina Steinitz met in 1948, just as they were surfacing, each one separately and in their own way, from respective corners of hell. Svi's father, a schoolmaster, his mother, who played piano beautifully, and his younger brother and sister, were all murdered by the Nazis. The last time Svi saw them was the day before his 15th birthday. He survived Plaschau, he survived Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Glewice, Sachsenhausen, and he survived, barely, two death marches through the snow. I was walking with other prisoners 11 days without food. I was hungering. I had no family. I had nobody. And I should find my way in my life. When Regina met Zvi for the first time, two years later, he was in British Mandate Palestine, a skinny young man in khaki kibbutz shorts and sandals, with sad eyes. She wouldn't have noticed him, Regina admits, but for the music. Regina and her twin sister Ruth had survived the Holocaust in Berlin, first in an orphanage and then in hiding. Their mother had died of tuberculosis. Their father escaped to America, where he started a new family, 
losing contact for years with the children from his first one. After the war, the twin girls tracked down one of their older brothers who'd managed to reach Palestine. They journeyed there to join him on a kibbutz he had founded together with other survivors, including Tzvi. It was initially called Kibbutz Buchenwald, after the concentration camp from which many of the members had been liberated. Later, the name was changed to Netzer Sireni. Sparkly and chatty, and a bit of princesses despite it all, the sisters were not the types, it was clear to everyone, to be put in tents like all the rest of the newcomers. So they were given a room, more like a closet really, attached to the back of another shared room. In order to leave the room, she should pass my room. Regina, meanwhile, was never too impressed with Tzvi's looks or charms, she says. She basically liked him for his radio. It was the only one radio in the kibbutz, and I liked very much from my childhood classic music. Beethoven, Mozart, Schubert, Lieder. Regina one day asked me if she can join me to listen to the music. So I had no problem to give her my green light. And then we come in conversation. From music, they moved on to books. They spent the afternoons reading Dostoevsky together and long Shabbats discussing Stefan Zweig or reciting Goethe, Schiele, or Heine. All this music and poetry and literature was something of a gateway for them, a gateway back to worlds they had lost and missed. We have the same culture and education. He was brought up with the German culture, music, uh, literature, and I too. We could speak together, we could change books, we can hear music together. And so it begins. They grew closer. But Svi, who had not yet kissed a girl, and who, since he lost his mother, had never really even been hugged or loved by a woman, or by anyone, held back. Regina was, uh, uh, let us say, she had more initiative than I had. And I was more passive. I know it uh, immediately when I felt it. I wanted to hug him, to kiss him, to come near to him. But he was very conservative. He was very introverse. He, he didn't have the courage to do it. And it was tension between us. Finally, unable to take it anymore, Regina leaned in and planted her kiss. Kibbutz life in those early days wasn't exactly conducive to dating, to put it mildly. But after that kiss-slash-fainting episode, Tzvi and Regina did manage to slip away once in a while. You must know, we were very poor. We had even not no money. But we went out in kibbutz in the evening by the swimming pool and the trees. And the moon was shining. And we kissed each other and hugged each other. And it was very much romantic. Six months later, in the middle of the sweltering summer heat, they stood out on the grass under a bedsheet. A handful of their fellow kibbutz members, all in dusty work clothes, showed up between shifts to wish them Mazaltov. The kibbutz committee donated a bottle of cheap red wine and some biscuits. 
we were young, we needed love, we needed family. In the kibbutz, if you marry, you get a room. Tzvi and Regina have been married for 65 years by now. Regina is 86, Tzvi 88. They have two children and two grandchildren, one of whom is a star high school basketball player. They left the kibbutz years ago and now live in a small ground floor apartment in Ramat Aviv, surrounded by memories of a long life together. There are books everywhere, including six they've written themselves, in German and Hebrew, about the Holocaust. There are plaques of appreciation from Tzvi's former workplace, a flower export company, that Regina proudly dusts off. There are Regina's framed nursing degrees and boxes upon boxes of old photos. They bring all this out together with a nut cake and cashews and tea and a whole set of cutlery. In a back room, Robert, their Indian caregiver, is chanting Hindu prayers. Tzvi and Regina, both a bit hard of hearing, don't notice. It's cold outside, and the two of them are padding around in sweatpants and fleeces, wearing thick socks with their crocs, as so many Israelis inexplicably do. It was never a given that their lives would turn out as they did. Productive, good, happy even. Way back then, under that makeshift chuppah, Regina had been struck with fear. What if she worried? After all the horrors they had gone through, happiness was simply impossible. When I cried under the chuppah, I thought by myself, Elohim yishmor, God save me. If my marriage will be like this, like I am crying under the chuppah, what will be my life? But Svi, who still has sad eyes, says that already then he knew they would make each other happy. There's a saying he likes. Regina thinks it's a Yiddish expression. Svi's convinced it's German. Being alone it goes, is for stones. I was several years alone like a stone. A human being cannot be a long time alone. Leise zieht durch mein Gemüt liebliches Geläute. You must find somebody who loves you. Wenn du eine Rose schaust, Sag ich, lass sie <laughs> Dana Harman. Dana's a journalist for Haaretz, and that piece was produced together with Shoshi Shmulovitz. So we call this episode Love Revisited. And why revisited? Well, exactly a year ago, our season one finale was a Valentine's Day special. It was called What's Love Got to Do With It? And now, a year later, we went back to a couple of those stories to see how they've changed and evolved over the past 12 months. And, as you're about to hear, they've become something entirely new and different. At least for us. Our next story stretches the boundaries of the kind of storytelling we usually do and is the collaborative brainchild of some of the most talented people we've had the honor to work with. It began as a radio piece called Jerusalem Love Story by Daniel Estrin. Daniel's piece followed the winding love affair of two men. In the original version, they weren't named, but this time we called them David and Ibrahim. They first met in an online chat room. David's an Israeli Jew from Jerusalem, and Ibrahim's a Palestinian Muslim from the West Bank. 
We then gave the original recordings Daniel had made, so the actual words that David and Ibrahim had said, over to Or Matias, who's one of the most brilliant composers and musical directors around. You should remember Or's name. He's the musical director of a phenomenal electro-pop opera, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which will go up on Broadway this coming fall. Or adapted the piece into a mini-musical, with entirely original music he wrote. Act two, there's a wall between us. Mara usbu'a. Usbu'in. Shahr. Hu. Waddesh majarrabna. Maghidernash. Nijahal hik. Nisinu od, va od. Nasanu gam lehodu. Acha. El tam. Ha tam. Lo yutseli meape. I feel like a stranger in here. I feel like a stranger in this place. Seems intelligent. He's from the West Bank. I'll write to him in Arabic. Looks like he speaks Arabic. He sees my pictures, thinks I am fooling him. I ask if there's a problem, but he says, No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. His profile says he's in Jerusalem. Sends a picture, his eyes are innocent He's not the first Israeli that I have talked to here But they all have issues with meeting Palestinian guys Nope, no issue at all I asked him if he thinks I'm dangerous I asked if there's a problem, but he said No, 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 no favorite color. Dude, when did you learn Arabic? <laughs> um, how tall are you? Favorite foods. What are your favorite foods? Hummus. I... Have you ever been to Jerusalem? No. Do you think there is a problem? No, no, no.
take a long time to suggest to meet that exciter day. Take a long time to say the things that I had to say. You are in Jerusalem, and I am in the West Bay. And there's a wall between us. We talk every day, and I love the things he is telling me. I'm excited and I feel like something special is about to begin, but it doesn't take a long time to see the glaring obstacle that's ahead of me. I can come to where he lives, but here he's not allowed in. The rules are against us. I cannot go far. He needs permits. Permits. He's got no permits. But I'm so excited. But I'm so excited. We're so excited. So let's break this wall between us. I'll sneak you in. Let's break this wall. Safer in here. I feel a lot safer in this place. So uh, I invited him to come to my house and uh, meet my family. <laughs> They were surprised in a nice way, like, "Wow, you are Jewish." But then my mother told me it would be dangerous if somebody would know that he's there, and I agreed. So. Eventually, he stopped coming to my house. A few months after we started going out, I told my parents. They were very against it. But then my mother once asked me about him. She said, "How is he doing? Why don't we see him anymore?" I said, "Mom, you were the one who told me to stop bringing him home." She said, "No, no, no. It's fine. It's okay if he doesn't sleep at our house. But but if if he only visits, it's fine." The very next day, he came to my house. He, he was like a part of the family, you know. But I'm, <laughs> I'm very sure that the, that they didn't know that we are in relationship. But everything is against you, everything. The law is against you. Being gay is against you, and your parents are against you. I really can't tell what would happen if if some somebody from、uh, Palestine would know that I'm gay. I live in a big lie, which is、uh, hiding my sexuality. You know. 
But it is. It is a very big love. So he smuggles me into Jerusalem because I don't have a permission to enter. said yes and that's a felony to host an illegal palestinian so they took us aside they asked me if i had the permits no 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 i don't have permits So they took us to the police station. In the interrogation, they asked us... How, how did we meet? What were we were thinking? thinking? We didn't want to tell them about the nature of our relationship because... Because it was less of an interrogation, more like a warning. You can right? be friends. You can be whatever you want. You can be friends. You, you can be whatever you want. Talk on the phone. Talk on the phone. Go see him in his home if you can go there. If you can go there. But you, you can't can bring him to Israel. Israel. I still kept bringing him into Jerusalem. We even took a trip abroad together. But for me, it was love. 
It was love. I didn't want to hang it on the wall that we are Palestinian and Israeli guys who are in love. Israeli and Palestinian guys who are in love. Palestinian Israeli and Palestinian and Israeli and Palestinian guys who are in love. At some point, I thought it would last forever. ما جربنا ما غدرناش نتجاهل هيك جربنا مرة وحتى سفرنا للهند بس الطعم مش غدر يطلع يعني قاعد بس أحلى שגם הפעם ייכנס לשטח זר. מצב ארור וגם ארור שדי ברור שהמצב לא ישתנה כאן בחיים רוצה רק כבר לחזור הביתה
There's a Wall Between Us, original radio piece by Daniel Estrin, musical adaptation, composition, and text by Or Matias. Alad Daka was Ibrahim, Eyal Sherf was David, and our amazing musicians, Mike Cohen on flute, Dylan Condor on guitar and mandolin, and Dan Weiner on percussion. So, ever since we've started working on this musical, a few months ago, I've been walking around Jerusalem humming I am a man to myself. People have definitely been looking at me, as if I've kind of lost it. But if you too want to hum these amazing tunes, stay tuned. We have a surprise that we'll be releasing very soon. Our next story takes place in a tiny village called Mevomodi'im, midway between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. The 254 people who live there, according to Israel's latest census, sort of look like a cross between the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Jerry Garcia. This is the story of two of them, Michael and Lea Golomb, and their 37-year-long marriage. We first heard about them from one of our listeners, this guy. My name is Adam Sinclair. After listening to one of our early episodes, he thought to himself, Oh, man, like, Michael and Lea are an Israel story. I mean, they are perfect for, for, for this show. So he wrote us an email. Hey guys, you know, I listened to your show and I'm already a, a big fan and I've got some story ideas for you. Adam started describing his wife's cousin, Michael. I've got a cousin who is a tall guy with red hair with this huge red beard, big penetrating eyes. You know, everybody that, that you meet, you sort of put them into like one category or another. But every once in a while you meet someone who is completely unlike anyone you've ever met. Michal is that kind of person. Now, a lot of people think their friends or family members are really interesting people and that we should record their stories. We've gone down that road many times, probably more than we should admit, actually. So we were kind of skeptical about this one. But then there was something unusual in Adam's email. If we wanted to record Michal, he wrote, we had to move fast. He's got terminal cancer, and, you know, I don't exactly know how much time he has left. So we called. Our senior producer, Yochai Meital, takes it from here. Act three, when time will fold over. Michael's voice was much stronger, more vibrant than I had expected from a dying man. I wish I'd recorded that conversation, but I swear he called me Brother Yochai at least a dozen times. He sounded happy, even energetic. And he invited us over to his home on Moshav Mevomodim, the village that Rabbi Shlomo Kalibach's Hippie Hasids founded in the 70s. Michael and his wife Leah met us at the door and immediately hugged us. Hi, Leah. Hi, how are you doing? Okay. Hi, so nice to meet you. Leah poured us some tea. Ginger honey. And we all sat down to talk around the dining room table. Michael and Leah were facing each other. She seemed tired and hunched over, leaning on her cane. Michael, on the other hand, sat upright and glanced at his wife with the admiring eyes of a teenager. If it weren't for the visible catheter bag draining his urine, it would have been hard to guess that he was the sick one, let alone about to die. You go first. You're older. But make sure you say you're almost 65, not to 64. My name is Michael Golub. Call me Michael. As my parents call me Mike. Oh, the Israelis love it, Mike. I'm Leah, Leah Gollum. I'm now 64. I'm 61 years old, and I have six children, 
eight grandchildren, another one at least that we know of on the way. 37 years. It's almost our anniversary, sweetie, by the way. Hint, hint. Quick update. There are now nine grandchildren and one more on the way. I grew up in suburban New Jersey. I was always very popular. I did well in school without really trying. Totally opposite of me. We were like opposite sides of the world. Machai once said to me that uh, we probably wouldn't even have been friends, but I always kind of felt bad for those guys that were always being made fun of and, you know, had a hard time, so we probably would have still connected. I was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama. I wasn't much of a social person. I was like a loner, kind of. Look, I was dyslexic. I couldn't read was, was, were, and you and him. It, it was a belly god. My, my 12th grade English teacher said to me when I walked out of the school, and says, Michael, you'll fail in everything you do. <laughs> That's it's lovely. Like, it's like, yeah. really, thanks, guy. <laughs> really young, I was 15, 14, started doing yoga because nobody else was being my friend. So spirituality was my friend. They met at a Kalibach gathering in New York. It's so crazy. We didn't even talk. It'd be such a groovier story if we had, like, noticed each other, eyes meet, but that didn't happen. But I walked out thinking, I don't know, I saw this man, and I'm not saying he's my soulmate, but everybody, everybody has a soulmate. I said to my mom, you know, I met this guy, I really feel like he's my guy. After that first encounter in which they barely exchanged a single word, Michal flew back to Israel and the Moshav, where he was already living. Now, remember how in that first email Adam claimed that Michal's unlike anyone you've ever met? Well, this is a good example. When he got back home, Michal sat down and wrote to Leah, basically saying, come to Israel, be with me. And she did. Then, a few weeks after she arrived... Friday night, we ate and then we went to the shul. After learning some Torah, I stood up and I said to Leah, will you be the mother of my children? And I said, okay. And she said, okay. <laughs> Two weeks later, we get married. I think of when we stood under the chuppah and I remember feeling like this was the most... I couldn't love anybody more than I did in that moment. And now I think of it and I just want to laugh. Like we didn't, we didn't even know each other. We didn't know anything. I didn't know what it meant to really love somebody so completely. What a schus. What a merit to be married to you in Eretz Israel. Wow. Thank you, Leila. Thank you so much. <laughs> In preparation for this interview, we had asked Michael and Leah to make a list of questions they wanted to ask each other, and topics they wanted to discuss before it was too late. They dove right into it, talking to each other for hours. When we were first married, do you remember what you said to me? What? You said to me that, um, I just want you to know that no matter what, I'll always love God more. Like, I can't love you that much. I can only love God the most, not you. And I remember thinking, I don't know, that sounds so screwed up. Like, that can't possibly be true. Like, I don't want to be with someone who doesn't love me the most. But somehow I still knew that we were supposed to be together. And then it, years and years later, you said to me that the truth is, the way I love you is the way I love Hashem. When I see you, I see a taste of heaven. That's what I see you. 
I don't see you old. I don't see you young. I see you forever. And I see you as just as much as as beautiful as a young woman. You're just as beautiful as Mama says being 61. It's, I can't believe it. It's so true. You glow. Yikes, I can't look at you because I'm going to cry. <laughs> It wasn't easy for them to discuss Michal's situation. It was there in the background all the time, but they preferred, understandably, to revisit simpler memories, sweeter ones. When they finally talked about it, Michal continued the same kind of optimistic tone in which he had discussed their meeting or children and home. My illness, I have uh, cancer, bladder cancer that's in my whole pelvic area. It's called an aggressive urolithiaethial, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but a very invasive and aggressive form of cancer. And uh, once it was able to spread throughout his body, there's, there aren't even statistics. You know, it's exciting for me. To me, it was clear life and death. How exciting. We did very aggressive treatment, and Mikhail, you were basically falling Falling apart. apart. At one point, Michal asked Leah to imagine life without him, what it would be like and how she would feel. I believe in Mashiach, and I don't fill my head at all with thoughts of what will happen then. There's a place of timelessness when you love somebody that has nothing to do with their body or uh, their ability to do things. There is a time when time will fold over. If I could fold the time over, I would really like that. I would love you if I wasn't here. If you, Mama's being alone is really sad. And if you connected up to the right person. Really? Doesn't sound good to me. I just, look, this is how I'm sharing to you in my headspace, right? Because for me, I just wanted to be Mama's to be strong and live into like 130 years old. Maybe my question would be to you, to as um, if it was my last day, yeah, what would you say to me? I'd say let's sit and learn a little bit. Right. <laughs> I'd say uh, I can't walk because it's hard for me to walk, but uh, but then I would sit on the deck and just be outside with you, learn some Torah, drink some tea. And um, I'd be davening my guts out that we'd still have more time. We aired a slightly different version of that story a year ago, in our first season's Valentine's Day special. Now, you know, we get intensely involved in our subjects' lives, and then we release their stories. Supposedly that's that, but, well, life goes on, and the stories never stop at the point where we left off. That's what happened in this case, too. So here's Yochai again. We had many hours of tape of Michael and Leah. We recorded them at home and then later in the hospital. Now, usually we would take our time editing a piece like this, but we knew that time was the one thing that Michal didn't have. 
So we rushed and managed to get them the final version just in time. Michael and I actually listened to it together. It came out came out that Thursday or something. It was Valentine's Day. And we listened to it in the hospital that Friday. Just I sat on his bed with him and I turned it on. At that point he was still uh, responsive and then he died that Wednesday. Michael died on Rosh Chodesh Adar, the beginning of the month of Adar, and was buried that very night. The funeral began well after midnight, and we were there, recording, standing in the rain together with hundreds of his friends. Everyone huddled around the muddy grave to see Michael off. Now, according to Jewish tradition, when a funeral falls on Rosh Chodesh, eulogies are forbidden, and during Adar, the month of Purim, it's actually a mitzvah to be happy and rejoice. So there were no parting words at Michal's funeral, which you're hearing here in the background. Instead, there were a lot of tears, and of course, music, led by two hipster chassids with a guitar and a ukulele. They began with some sad nigunim, and people hummed along. The singing increased and grew louder and louder. Something unexpected happened. Yeah, we started singing Misha Nichnas Adar Marvin the symbol. We asked them to sing it. When the month of Adar arrives, you must rejoice. Leah again almost a year after Michal's passing, she was sitting at the same table where we had done the recordings. There was a yardside candle in the middle of the table. She lights it when she studies Torah. It reminds her of Michal, she says. The boy stopped saying Kaddish for him. just like hard to believe. So, um, yeah, I guess I've just been through a lot. Like I've had to really think about what I'm doing and uh, who I am without him here. It's hard. I feel like we grew up together, so it's kind of hard to ask me really how I am because I'm not really sure where the I is, like how much is just me, and I don't really want to be Michael. I really want to be Leah. I want to be myself, um, but I'm so a part of who he is also, like we kind of grew into who we are. <laughs> This story was produced by Benny Becker and Yochai Meital. Original music by Colin Oldham. And that's our episode, Love Revisited. 
You can hear all our episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other main podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Now, in case you haven't heard, we're looking for a sponsor. So if you want to support our show and reach a dedicated and rapidly growing audience, email us at sponsor at prx.org. We've got a lot of people to thank for today's show and for help on the Israel and Love live show tour. First and foremost, a big thanks to Megan Whitman, Amanda Crater, Matt Temkin, Jeff Fontaine, Rabbi Ayelet Cohen, Rabbi Joy Levitt, and the entire staff at the JCC Manhattan. This could not have happened without you guys. To Faye and Hartley Koshitsky, the Charles H. Revson Foundation, Zabars, and Zabars.com for supporting our tour. To Nina Lehman, Federica Sasso, Yona Silverman, and Chloe Treat for help on putting the show together. And to our amazing hosts in Miami, Miriam Fisher, Ike Fisher, and Lourdes Suarez, who so, so generously welcomed us into their homes and lives. To Alan Levitt, Michael Andron, Igor Chochlov, Larry Spiegelman, and Robin Fisher. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Shoshi Shmulovitz, and, for the first time as a full staff member, Rachel Fisher. Amir Factor and Itai Hayman are our incredible production interns. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, stay in love, and yalla bye.